This message by Mark Dever, entitled Glorifying Christ with the Psalmist, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the third general session at our Worship God 2008 conference. Mark serves as senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and is president of Nine Marks. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we rejoice at the hope we have. When we read in your word and we see in Psalm 22 of the great despair that David knew and of the greater despair that foreshadowed and yet of the confidence even in the deepest despair that can be born in you because of your goodness, your faithfulness, your trustworthiness. Lord, our hearts are moved to praise you. Our hearts are moved to be confident in you. We give you thanks and praise. We pray that you would help us this evening to understand you still more in your word. And so we give ourselves to you. We pray for the assistance of your spirit with us now as we turn again to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be with you all. Thank you for the privilege, Bob, of being here with people from all over the place. The, the Bidi Anyabwile from Grand Cayman and Jonathan Langley from California and Dennis Newkirk from Oklahoma. Are you here? Oh, hey, Dennis. Love to see you afterwards. Well, just uh, with people from all over, it's, it's great to see you. And Bob, I do appreciate it. It is a privilege anytime I'm entrusted with a public audience like this to open God's Word. And just a couple of things. I I think, uh, I can't think of anyone that I have learned more about worship from than Bob. Now, if you've been here for the last two or three hours, however long we've been here so far tonight, and you've ever attended Capitol Hill Baptist Church or a church like it, you might be surprised that I would say that. But Bob has been an incredibly careful student of God's Word on this topic for decades now. And he is a joyous and humble teacher. And uh, one of the things that I'm particularly thankful for this year at this conference is that his book is out. Now, if you don't have a copy of his book, Worship Matters, I would strongly encourage you to get a copy of that. Uh, I uh, read it, loved it, uh, found it's a great combination of everything from biblical theology to very practical help with your own heart if you're involved in leading the public singing and music in your congregation. I don't know of another book like it. We're going to have our interns uh, at our church read it each semester. So this semester is the first time it's been out for us to use, and we're excited about them reading it and profiting from it. So, Bob, thank you for doing that. Uh, I would strongly encourage you all to get a copy of it. If you don't have it, read it and begin to use it in your church. Carl Truman, professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, noted several years ago that the Psalms, the focus of this conference have seemed to drop out of public worship services in evangelical churches. He said, I'm not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of psalms are taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. 
But in the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. By excluding cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. It has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism and generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphalist Christianity. In the last year, I've asked three very different evangelical audiences what miserable Christians can sing in church. On each occasion, my question has elicited uproarious laughter, as if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical. And yet I pose the question in all seriousness. I'm so thankful that Bob decided to have this conference focused on the Psalms. There is a rich treasure house in God's Word that our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents knew about and used and profited from and knew God better for that we have come to ignore. There's no doubt that the Psalms are part of God's wonderful provision for us in His Word. We see them... Uh, and we see them, like uh, like Thabiti talked about this morning, running the gamut of emotions, showing how we find in them emotions that we tend to like, like joyful praise and awed recounting of God's majesty, but even those more uncomfortable ones that Carl Truman mentions. Certainly those point to an honesty before God. But do they point us to anything more? In order to help us think about this, we want to briefly examine three psalms tonight. Three psalms. One that Jesus quoted about himself. One that elsewhere in the New Testament was referred to Jesus. And a final one that is not referenced explicitly as being about Jesus. So if I'm supposed to lead us in looking at Christ in the psalms, I want to look at one that he quoted about himself. I want to look at one that the rest of the New Testament talks about Jesus in light of. And I want to look at one that's like most of the Psalms, where neither of those two things happen. And we'll spend most of our time on the first one, because I want to stick in most of my theological arguments early, while you're still with me. (laughs) And we're going to be turning around in our Bibles a good bit tonight, going Old Testament and New. So get your Bibles out and your fingers limber, ready to go. All right? First Psalm we want to look at is the one Ryan just so effectively recited for us one of the most anguished of the psalms psalm 22 i won't read it again we've just heard it but i do want you to open up to look at it it's a psalm of david it shows as well i think that it's not only joy that pushes the human soul into verse in this psalm david seems near death at least he seems near to despair of his life. If you look there, you see in verses 1 and 2, he states his case briefly and directly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. 
And then you see, almost in distinction from this, in verses 3 to 5, he rehearses God's faithfulness to his fathers. He's not seeing God's faithfulness in his own life at that moment. But then, even then, he can still see God's faithfulness to his fathers in verses 3 to 5. But then he goes back in verses 6 to 8 to his own despised state and recounts that. And then he prays in verses 9 to 11 for God's nearness and protection as he has known it in the past. So from the very depths of his despair in verse 1, you see there by verse verse uh, 9, 10, 11, he's beginning now to remember that he has been faithful to him, not just his fathers, but to him in the past. But then again in 12 down to 18, he recounts his sufferings. 19 to 21, he prays for salvation. In 22, 23, 24, he, he praises God for his salvation. And then he concludes the psalm there, verses 25 to 28, saying that he will make God's praises known. And then even in the last three verses, 29 to 31, he proclaims that God's praises will be everlasting. What an amazing psalm. What a wonderful psalm to meditate on, to read out loud. You know, the psalms were originally sung. We don't have the original melodies. But you can still at least read them out loud when you're having your own quiet time. You can get more of the sense of them often, I think, when you hear them. Well, it's an honest expression of one who's pressed to some point near despair and yet who ends up praising God. And we see the gamut from the deep valley to the top of the mountain all in this short span of 31 verses. Now, what's David referring to here? Well, we don't know exactly. We know it's David. He knew numerous times of difficulty in his life, even from what we know is recorded in Scripture. His rejection by Saul, his rejection by his own son, Absalom, God's chastising him for numbering his people, other times of great trial in David's life. But whenever was this specific example, or whenever was the specific occasion of this psalm, here we have David crying out, remembering God's faithfulness in the past, turning back to his own current suffering, but then praying and then again thinking of his suffering, but then praying again. And then someplace, I think around verse 22, there's this surge of faith and he begins to praise God and to praise him and to say that his praises will be made known to the point of affirming by the end that even those who are yet unborn will be singing God's praises. So certain is he of God's faithfulness, not only to him right now in whatever this forsaken state he was in, but going forward into the future as far as he could imagine because he was confident of God's faithfulness. Quite a distance from the beginning of the psalm when he was near despair. And that's all there in that one psalm. Now I hope you see in this, in David, a model that both empathizes with you in your struggles And yet at the same time, which calls you to trust God. The Psalms are often celebrated for their ability to give uh, expression to a wide range of human feelings. And to do so in a way that helps us realize how we can represent such feelings to God. You know, some people have this idea of God that He doesn't want to hear from us unless we're really happy. But friends, that's not true. God knows that we are in a fallen world. God knows that even His redeemed, adopted, reconciled children are living under the curse. 
God knows that we bring Him glory by depending on Him, throwing ourselves on His mercy. Friend, you don't need to clean up yourself or pretend in front of God to come into His presence. And Psalm 22 is such a a clear picture of this. John Calvin, in his preface to his commentary on the Psalms, said that I have been accustomed to call this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, referring to the Psalms. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Here the prophets themselves, seeing they are exhibited to us as speaking to God, and laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections, call, or rather draw, each of us to the examination of himself in particular, in order that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject, and of the many vices with which we abound, may remain concealed. It is certainly a rare and singular advantage when all lurking places are discovered. Love that phrase. All lurking places are discovered, and the heart is brought into the light, purged from that most baneful infection, hypocrisy. Genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first from a sense of our need and next from faith in the promises of God. That's good enough for me to repeat. Genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first from a sense of our need and next from faith in the promises of God. In a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught us in this book of Psalms. Friends, recover this book. Now, we could go for some time through the Psalms considering how the Holy Spirit led David uh, to write this and to write that and some of the other psalmists to inform our intellect, arouse our emotions, finally even direct our wills But we're not going to take time to do that now. We've already heard from Thabiti this morning. But just be sure that if you're a young Christian knowing the joy of the Lord, you will find words in this book to form your praises to God. If you're in midlife and you are consumed with business and you're feeling tempted to feel you've lost God in the midst of it all, you will find words that help you feel after Him. If you are in your older years and you begin to feel darkness growing and a tendency to feel forgotten, the psalmist can supply you with expressions to God. And and if you're facing death, certainly even there, the psalmist can help you affirm that God is with you even as you walk through that dark valley of the shadow of death. Poetry, parallelisms, imagery, all of these are used by God to evoke awe and praise and humility, and honesty, and trust from us toward Him in this book of Psalms. And we'd be wrong not to read and use the Psalms in this way. The Psalms are part of the Word of God. They are meant to help us, to guide us in His ways. So throughout the New Testament, the Psalms are referred to as authoritative for matters of doctrine and behavior. Paul establishes the doctrine of human depravity in Romans 3 from the book of Psalms. Peter, after Judas has betrayed Jesus and they're lacking one in the twelve now, Peter goes to the book of Psalms for very practical direction to find out what they should do next in Acts chapter 1 verse 20. So the Psalms are part of the inspired and authoritative word of God. And we, we know that. We believe that. But in a Psalm like Psalm 22, 
Are we only to find David's despair and then how that turns to praise and how that then could be replicated in our own lives? That's a good purpose for Psalm 22. I don't want to take that away. But is that all we're to see there? Or are we to find Christ in the Psalms as well? There are two basic errors that I want to make sure we chop off in our time together. And actually, I'm going to think they're easy enough to chop off in this group that we're going to do it in about two sentences, all right? Then we'll spend the rest of the time sort of in between. The two errors I'd like to make sure that we get rid of, simply by recognizing them, is error number one of thinking Jesus is nowhere to be found in the Psalms, except places that would be explicitly quoted in the New Testament. Other than that, that Jesus is no place to be found in the Psalms. If you think that, hang on, and I'd like to talk to you about it as we keep going. But that's an error. And for the good of your own soul and for the good of the church that you serve, I'd like to challenge you to rethink that, if that's what you tend to think. And on the other hand, the error that sees Jesus in absolutely everything and thinks that if you don't see Jesus and you see anything else in it, you must be wrong, and you're just preaching a synagogue sermon. Well, there is a lot of other stuff in the Psalms like the despair of David turning to faith and praise in Psalm 22. But that also is an error that people sometimes fall into. There's great revelation of other stuff in the Psalms. But we want to look particularly to to find Christ in the Psalms. How are we to find him? Has God put him there or are we just imagining him? Let me give you three brief comments on this and the amount of stuff that's written on this could fill anybody's library that i know this is a huge topic but let me just give you three brief comments on how we find christ in the psalms number one perhaps a good place to begin is by remembering that the whole bible has one message the whole bible has one message that is while it is true that philemon tells us one thing and genesis another and Mark's gospel, still other things, and the Psalms, still others. There is a unified message. And what is that message? Well, I I like the way Martin Luther put it. He said the cross of Christ is found everywhere in the Scriptures. Even in the Psalms, you may ask? Well, those of us who've gone before, or those who've gone before us have said so, like Jonathan Edwards, who in one sermon of his I was reading not too long ago, said almost the whole book of Psalms has either direct or indirect respect to Christ and the gospel which he was to publish. Friends, I think our predecessors are right. I think the whole Bible has one message. And I think that one message is to point us to Jesus Christ and to his cross. So then a second brief comment. Jesus taught that the Old Testament was about him. That is, we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Well, what did Jesus teach? He taught that the Old Testament was about him. So what chapter am I going to turn to to make that point? Loudly and distinctly. Luke 24. Let's turn to Luke 24. Luke 24 is the home ground for biblical theology. Luke 24. After he was raised, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who didn't recognize him. Two disciples who didn't recognize him. 
It's almost, if I allegorize for a moment, which I'm not encouraging you to do in this talk, it's like the evangelical Christians who are his disciples, but they don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. So here he is walking along with them. Luke 24, verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, of course, when he says all the scriptures there, he doesn't mean the book of Romans. He doesn't mean the gospel of John, right? This is Jesus' resurrection before the ascension. This is before anything in the New Testament had been written. When he means the scriptures, he means the Old Testament. And he's saying the Old Testament was written concerning him. Look on down in the chapter a little later. Jesus told the 11 disciples and those assembled with them the same thing down in verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And friends, that's why I prayed before I began to speak. God must open our minds if we are to understand the scriptures. Study alone will not do it. God must open our minds. He told them this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And note here in these verses, in verses 44 to 46, it is, it's clearly the outline of Jesus' earthly life and its significance that is said to be written in the Old Testament. He's not just saying, in the Old Testament, you are going to see that you're a sinner and you need God's grace. I do think we see that in the Old Testament. But please don't underestimate what Jesus is saying here. Jesus seems to be saying very clearly here that his earthly life, the shape of his ministry, the rejection by the people, the suffering he would undergo, and then the resurrection to glory, all of that is in the Old Testament. If they would read and understand it. All right, you may think, but since we didn't get to attend Jesus' seminar on biblical theology this afternoon, how are we to know how to find Christ in the Psalms? Well, in answering this question, let's begin, as we should in answering every question, let's begin with what we know, not with what we don't know. You can stand here and ask me after the session tonight a hundred questions about this that I won't be able to answer. But, you know, just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything. So we begin with what we do know. And this brings me to my third brief comment on this. We find some psalms applied to Jesus in the New Testament. This is how we know we're not on ground that's shaking. So Psalm 22, of course, is one of those select number of psalms that Jesus explicitly applied to himself in his teaching that is recorded for us in the New Testament. I remember when I was a young Christian reading my living Bible in the, uh, in the public library sitting there as a teenager reading this thing. I was reading Psalm 22 and all of a sudden I'm, I got to the middle part, you know, about mentioning his bones feeling out of joint and the clothes being divided up. And I thought there'd been a misprint. I was so confident of it. I thought this must've been some kind of misprint from the gospels into the Psalms that I phoned my pastor to tell him I'd found an error in this copy of the Bible. You know, it is so striking what the Holy Spirit did through David's despair and his experience there. 
Not that David's despair wasn't real. It just wasn't all there was to David's despair. God was working a testimony in David's own life to what he would later do through David's son. And we see other psalms that Jesus uses in reference to himself. So Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 35, Psalm 41, Psalm 69, 82, Psalm 110, maybe most famously, and Psalm 118. And there are a good number of other psalms that scholars argue are behind this or that saying. Beyond these, there's also the psalms that Jesus' students, the ones who sat there and heard that seminar by Jesus in biblical theology, the ones that they explicitly quoted and applied to Jesus. Psalm 2, 8, 16, 19, 22, 34, 40, 45, 69, 78, 91, 95, 102, 110, 117, 118, and 135. Friends, many of these riches of understanding, most of us have probably never plumbed ourselves. We've probably never, in the hundreds or thousands of quiet times we've had, ever opened up our Bibles to one of these Psalms, gone to the New Testament, See how it's applied to Jesus. And then gone back and read it and considered what that means. Do you see that the Holy Spirit has here in His Word riches for your fuller understanding about Jesus that you've not even looked into yet? Are you excited to get back to your room tonight and try a little bit of this? It's not like new books in the Bible, but it can feel almost like it. That there's actually material here about what God has done in Jesus that we haven't yet considered, most of us, thought about. But it's here for us to enrich our own devotional meditations and from that then our public teaching and leading God's people in understanding and praising God for what He's done in Christ. Well, that's straightforward enough. But beyond these Psalms, are there other sightings of Jesus in the Psalms? How are we to know and to evaluate what is and what is not? And to that, we have to go back, I think, to the second of those brief comments that I made. That second one. Jesus taught that the Old Testament was about himself. That's the basis for our continuing to look around in the Psalms, I think, to consider what this means in particular instances. Because in many places in Jesus' teaching, he makes it clear that he assumes a meaning in the Old Testament that all I can say seems to be a lot more clearly about himself than most of us seem to assume. From the sermons that I listen to and the books that I read, most of us don't seem to really think there is that much that's clear in the Old Testament about Jesus. But the Old Testament that Jesus read and taught to him seemed to have a lot of information. So Jesus taught that he truly came to fulfill the law and the prophets to clarify and complete the Old Testament. As Jesus said in John 5.39, the Scriptures, meaning of course the Old Testament, testify about me. It's this kind of clear statement of Jesus that makes it impossible for us to approach the Old Testament as our modern Jewish friends do. As much as we may respect their scholarship and love their persons, We understand Jesus to be a more reliable guide to the Old Testament Scriptures 
than they are. And so we must follow him in realizing that these scriptures do, in fact, speak about him. Because he says plainly there in John 5, 39, they testify about me. So can we rightly grasp the significance of any Old Testament text without understanding its relation to Jesus Christ? If I can just turn the tables for a moment. I guess that's the question that I pose in my own mind. I think Craig Blomberg has it right when he says, All of the Old Testament remains normative and relevant for Jesus' followers, but none of it can rightly be interpreted until one understands how it has been fulfilled in Christ. Every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of Jesus' person and ministry and the changes introduced by the new covenant he inaugurated. End of quote. So whether by an explicit prophecy about the Messiah, like Moses has in Deuteronomy 18, about a prophet like himself that God will raise up, or failing that maybe by a pattern which foreshadows Christ in some aspect of his ministry, like the book of Hebrews uses Melchizedek or uses the the high priest and teaches us that those are meant there as foreshadowings of Christ. Yes, they were real historical things themselves, but they were also intended by the sovereign Lord of history who really made sure those things happened to be there as foreshadowings of Jesus Christ to teach us more about Christ when he would come. So whether by such patterns or failing that by simply being a part of one of the books of the Bible... And so a part of the story of redemption, which all points to Christ, it all leads to Christ, culminates in Christ. Jesus Christ is, in some real sense, a legitimate part of any Old Testament text. In fact, we could even say that any other point we may understand such a text to have must itself, in order to be legitimate, point to Christ. So if you want to come and bring up, well, Mark, what about this text? Okay, okay, show me what you think the point of that text is. Fine, great. Let's say, let's say we agree on that. But then I'm going to say, but what's the point of that? And you see how you will very quickly get to Jesus Christ. So how else can we understand Jesus' own words to the Jews earlier in John 5, in verses 46 and 47, where he said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote... How are you going to believe what I say? Now, in our hubris, we might correct Jesus. We mean, no, 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 Jesus. They were the guys who actually did believe what Moses wrote. They just didn't believe in you. But Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand what Moses wrote. Because if you understood it, you would know he was writing of me. So the reason you don't believe in me is because, in fact, you don't believe what Moses wrote. You believe your own synthesized version of it that cuts me out. And this is clearly what Jesus' disciples understood. Very interesting to look through the book of Acts. How did they evangelize? By giving historical evidences for the resurrection? Never once. I'm not trashing that. That's what God used to bring me to Christ. I'm just trying to observe what's going on in the Bible. In the book of Acts, what they do is when they're in a synagogue, they grab their Old Testaments. And they read their Old Testaments. And they they say, look, this is what it means. They correct their readings of the Old Testament. Now, we have to admit that we are often hesitant about typological preaching. We're concerned, and it's a good concern, 
that we not read things into the text that aren't there. Because when we come to the Bible, what we want to do is get out of the text what God put there. Right? So we don't want to do eisegesis, reading in, because that blocks us from seeing what God put there. We want to do exegesis, read it out. See what is there, what God put there, and bring that out for us and to the people then that we lead. We're concerned that we'll only see a mirror of our own inventiveness rather than hear God's word as he has intended. But friends, I think the more we know our Bibles, I think the more we know the main storyline especially so that we come to see its distinctive outlines and shapes, the more we will be able to preach from the whole Bible and to understand it. And the less arbitrary Jesus and the apostles will seem in the way they see Jesus in the Old Testament. As Sidney Gradanus put it in his Preaching Christ from the Old Testament, preaching Christ is preaching sermons which authentically integrate the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation in the person, work, and or teaching of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament. So just an example to try to make this clearer. Some Christians are puzzled when they first encounter what seems like a mixed-up reference to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But they find this text in Matthew chapter 2. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 2. Where Matthew is writing, verse 14, Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. So he, Joseph, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, now what's Jesus thinking, or what's Matthew rather thinking here? Isn't Jesus, God's son, about to go down into Egypt? So it's such a Christological reading of the Old Testament, simply a matter of finding a couple of words that are the same. Son, Egypt, and going, look at that. Wow, that's a prophecy. (laughs) Ignoring that Jesus is going down to Egypt and that Hosea refers to coming up out of. It's kind of like when you're on vacation and you have a crossword puzzle or a jigsaw puzzle and you have that piece that's not quite right, but you're forcing it into that space. Is that what Matthew's doing here with Hosea? Is that what this kind of Christological reading does? And does this kind of encouragement to read the Old Testament in this way encourage preachers and Christians to do this? Well, it doesn't need to. If we can stop sort of shoving the puzzle piece and maybe in understanding the text a little bit more just sort of turn the piece, we may find that it fits perfectly. So... Did you consider that Matthew may have meant to ironically identify contemporary unbelieving Israel with Egypt? He may very well have meant to point to the fact that God's people, oppressed, babies being slaughtered, the male children killed, the Israelites having become their own oppressors, Pagan and unbelieving idolatrous Egyptians were what the Israelites had become. If so, then that prophecy not only fits, 
But it's an ironic judgment as well on the unbelieving nation that was rejecting Jesus from his birth. They had made themselves like the Gentiles. The people who were not a people that God had made his people were saying, we are not your people. You see how the whole shape of Old Testament history, that the story of Israel being called up out of Egypt is providentially intended by God to prepare us for the coming of Christ, to understand his life and ministry. And should that surprise us? That the God who created time itself and put us within it has acted within it and delights to reveal himself and then to clarify what he has said over time and to refine it and to build on it as he brings it all to a spectacularly precise and appropriate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So the whole history of the world and especially of God's people is there and it's real history. But it's also there as history specifically and most importantly of all to teach us about Jesus Christ and what he would be like. Isn't that really what the author of the Hebrews says at the very beginning of that letter? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So the Old Testament is an elaborate, profound riddle of God's justice and mercy, to which the New Testament provides the amazing, mind-blowing answer of Jesus Christ. Quote David King, pastor of Concord Baptist Church in Chattanooga, The promises have been fulfilled in Christ. Circumcision has been fulfilled in Christ. The exodus has been fulfilled in Christ. The tabernacle has been fulfilled in Christ. The food laws have been fulfilled in Christ. The sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ. Wisdom has been fulfilled in Christ. To preach as if unaware that revelation progresses toward Christological fulfillment is to insert a period where God has decidedly used a comma. Should have had David here to bring this message. Once convinced, though, we still need to be taught. How do we read our Old Testament like this? How do we read the book of Psalms like this? Well, clear predictions. Those texts that are used in the New Testament can be straightforward enough for us. But what about the great majority of texts in the Psalms, that's where we are, that are neither cited in the New Testament nor have a clear messianic prediction nor any clear prefiguring present? What, what then? I'm helped by the way Brian Chapel has posed the question for us. What does this text reflect of God's nature that provides the ministry of Christ and or human nature that requires the ministry of Christ? Let me read that for you again. What does this text reflect of God's nature that provides the ministry of Christ and or human nature that requires the ministry of Christ? So, so back to Psalm 22. This psalm of David that really expresses what David was thinking and feeling also was written of Christ. And so the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 2.12 could quote Psalm 22 verse 22 and say that it was quoting Jesus. John the evangelist also understood David's trials in Psalm 22 to prefigure Christ's. So in John 19 verse 24 when he recounts the soldiers who were crucifying Christ were dividing up Christ's clothes by Lot, John quoted Psalm 22, verse 18. And of course, both the writer to the Hebrews and John would have known that most important, 
Jesus applied Psalm 22 to himself on the cross. So his cry of dereliction on the cross, his expression of what it meant to receive the separation from God that your sins and mine have deserved, he cried out in the words of this psalm, Psalm 22. This is what we see as the experience of Christ on the cross. Really the experience of David, but in God's historical care for us, in his sovereignty, David's situation was crafted in order to help us understand something more of the situation of Jesus Christ. Friends, meditating on Psalm 22 is a powerful place for us to come to understand more of God's love for us in Christ. It's a very straightforward psalm for us to understand this way. It's a source of precious insight worthy of meditation and public teaching. But we need to move on for our purposes. And I want us to look look at another less obvious psalm in order to help you do this with most of the psalms. Look at Psalm 78. Turn to Psalm 78. Now, for those of you who know your psalms, you'll know that Psalm 78 is one of the longest. Not as long as Psalm 119, but it's a long psalm. And because of that, I'm not going to take time to read it all right now. But let's at least turn and look at it. I want you to see it. It's not a psalm of David. It's a psalm of Asaph. He was the second most frequent psalmist. It's an historical psalm recounting God's work with his people. You just look over it. Take take a moment and look at it. It it talks about God punishing his people for their sins and yet showing mercy. It recapitulates Israel's history from the Exodus through to David. And the simple recounting of the history here should be enough to evoke praise to God from us. Look at verse 7. This shows that he clearly intended this to help us trust God, to obey God with our lives. Now, the New Testament gives us two clues on how to understand Christ in this passage. Matthew, after repeating four of Jesus' kingdom parables in Matthew 13, quotes verse 2 of Psalm 78. Look at verse 2. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. In that sense, I think that we're to understand not only was Asaph recounting history as a way to understand and discern what would be appropriate action in the future, history became a tool for transferring wisdom. In that sense, history became a parable. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Asaph also recorded what would be true of Christ's teaching about the kingdom as he took the familiar and the misunderstood and corrected and clarified the teaching through stories and images. So in that sense, Asaph was a parable maker, used by God as a revealer. And he was prefiguring that part of the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. A parable maker, a revealer of the truth about the kingdom of God. In another place, in John six, thirty-one, the crowds actually quote part of Psalm 78 to Jesus. Look at verse 24 of Psalm 78. They quote this to him in order to convince him to perform a miraculous sign for them. And I think particularly it was lunchtime. I think they wanted bread. He, God, raised down manna, rained down manna on the people to eat. He gave them grain from, of heaven 
And then in John 6, this is how Jesus responds to them when they quote this psalm to him. I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, friends, Jesus did not here invent a meaning for an historical event. But rather, he interprets the true meaning of the historical event. We understand from Jesus that the reason God fed his people in the wilderness was not only to provide them for food with food during the Exodus, though it was certainly that, but he also did it specifically to provide a significant image in their memory, the memory of their people, of God providing life-giving bread so that they could better understand who Jesus was. Now that he has come and what he had come to do when he did come. You see, in that sense, the whole history of Israel was intended by God, not only for the history itself, but for the way it prefigured and pointed to Christ. So, Psalm 78, that recounts the history of the people of God. Psalm 78 was intended to instruct the people of God in what it meant to trust God savingly, and was at the same time preparing God's people with categories to understand both their need for and God's provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. Note that we can't properly understand Psalm 78 by merely looking for Christ. And that's my concern that we might do that wrongly. You have to first understand the psalm as it would have been originally understood. What would make sense then? But then when you've done that, I don't think you're done. I think you want to look forward and see what that was pointing to. So we must first understand the psalm as it was originally intended and then We're in the place to see how the problems revealed and the promises made in the text actually are fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Though there is no explicit messianic prophecy in this psalm, in the richness of a psalm as full as this one, there are many ways to Christ, I think, with integrity. Psalm 78 is about the history of Israel, and friends, that whole history points to Christ. God took a people in order to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. However we get there, we see in Psalm 78 that faith is not forgetting what God has done, but remembering. It is not opposing what God has taught, but following. Ultimately, it's not trusting in your own righteousness before God, but trusting in God's provision, His provision of righteousness for us in Christ. Friends, that's how you look at Psalm 78 as a Christian. The comprehensive nature of our own need suggests to us the comprehensive nature of Christ's atonement. If Psalm 78 presents a continuingly true picture of God's straying people, how do we not bring God's judgment on us, but instead know His mercy toward us and have a real relationship with God? Only through Jesus Christ. Not through our perfect obedience. That's where this psalm points us to the answer. And and when you start studying it carefully, maybe do this for your quiet time in the morning. Look for Jesus in Psalm 78. Friends, I think everywhere from the grain of heaven in verse 24 to the mention of David at the end of the psalm is meant to turn us to Jesus Christ. Christ taught that he was the bread that came down from heaven, the bread of God 
is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. He's even given an ordinance that we regularly observe, the Lord's Supper, to remind us that he is the bread of life. Friends, did you notice the pattern that we've been given in this psalm, God's goodness, our disobedience, even in light of God's goodness, our disobedience, God's judgment, and yet His mercy and our response? Friends, it's the pattern of the gospel. You know, there are even people leading music. There are people even who lead music. No, try that again. Even people who lead music. No, Um, even among people who lead music. There are lost people. There are people who don't know this Jesus Christ. Well, friend, right here in Psalm 78, you see the gospel prefigured. It's not as clear as it is in the New Testament. But you see that we're confronted with the fact that we're sinners, made in in God's image, and yet we've separated ourselves from Him by our desire to follow and feed ourselves first and foremost. And God, because He's good, will judge us for our sins. He is committed to being good. He is good. And he could have left the story there with judging us. But instead, he shows us mercy. Now, we don't know how he shows that mercy very clearly from Psalm 78. There are other places like Isaiah 52 and 53 in the Old Testament that tell us this. And Jesus then makes it very clear. You know how he showed mercy to us? By God taking on flesh, the eternal Son of God being made a man and living the perfect life that we should have lived, perfectly trusting our Father in heaven in every decision. And yet... He died on the cross, specifically bearing the penalty that we deserve for our sins. What amazing love. Do we know that's really true, that He did that? Yes, because God raised Him from the dead as a vindication of those claims. That's how we know. That's God's great statement to the world. Yes, what He taught is true. He did come to give His life as a ransom for many. Friends, that pattern of the gospel, that pattern that's Your only hope to be forgiven of your sins, to have a new life. It's the only hope of any of us here tonight who are Christians. It's the only hope for anyone in this whole world. That pattern is here in Psalm 78. It's the pattern of God's way with his people. And when you look, you see it here. Hebrews chapter 9 helps us to see how this foreshadows Christ in his priestly ministry of the atoning sacrifice. The whole history of God's dealing with his sinful people illustrates this. We, like God's people of old, are unfaithful, and so we need a Savior who will be faithful for us. So what's the clearest way to see Christ in the fulfillment of Psalm 78? I'm not sure. I think there are a lot of ways. You know, one thing we do at our church is to have a service review where the preacher and the service leader and just other people involved with the service, other people on staff will gather and will go over everything that happened on Sunday. And we go over the music how it went, everything from the sound to the, to the accompaniment to the congregation singing. But we take most of our time going over the sermon. And one thing we do when we come to looking at Christ in the Old Testament is we offer loving critiques of each other. So we're trying to get better at it. We're trying to let each other speak honestly. Do you think I was forcing that? That's not really there. Or do you think what I said there was, was right? I mean, was that, is that a clear way to do it? And God, by His grace, helps us to read our Old Testaments better more Christologically, more centered on Jesus Christ as we speak to each other and help try to challenge each other in this area. You might find that's a good practice for you as well. Well, we should look at one more psalm, Psalm 1. Turn to Psalm 1. I might say these are the most difficult kind for many people to see Christ in. 
Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What about this psalm? How would you see Christ here? Neither Jesus nor his apostles are recorded as applying Psalm 1 to Jesus. So we have no Holy Spirit commentary on this one. It's really down to what we see here and what we think makes sense. It's a wisdom psalm, sort of like the Proverbs, and they can be difficult to take on board. They have general principles, right? They're not life stories with all the events. You know, we're blessed if we, if we don't follow in the way of wickedness, but rather we find our delight in the Lord's law and His way. So these images are used of a well-planted, well-watered thing versus a dried-up one. He's again in Jeremiah 17. He uses this kind of metaphor elsewhere. One endures forever. The other is perishing and pointless. But there's nothing explicit about Jesus here. And though all the scriptures are fulfilled in Christ, and certainly some of the Old Testament authors must have been given extraordinary insight into the ministry of Jesus. Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Daniel. I mean, think of the things that these men said about Jesus or things that we see in the New Testament quoted about them. That doesn't mean that all of the authors of every part of the Old Testament had to have such specifically clear insight. Could they not write under the influence of the Holy Spirit, even pointing to Christ without themselves fully realizing what they were doing? Couldn't David or Asaph or this anonymous psalmist write every word of a psalm without having Jesus clearly in mind, and yet still in God's providence write something that would find its fulfillment in Christ? And yet the first Christians understood that they had begin to re- begun to read these Old Testament authors, including these psalms, not merely Christianly, but correctly. Now, you people older than me don't need to worry about this part very much, but for you people younger than me, I want you to understand this. I'm not just telling you, why don't you pick up a book and decide you want to read it this way? You've been taught you can do that in school. You've been taught that's the only kind of reading there really is. That's not true. There's a truth and there's a falsehood. And what Jesus taught his disciples is that this is the right way to read the Old Testament. That when you read the Old Testament in another way, you misunderstand the Old Testament. He's clear about that. So again and again, read through the book of Acts. Do your own study on this. The apostles take the scriptures, they read them, they argue with people from the Old Testament about Jesus fulfilling text after text. They're saying, look, you've misunderstood what the prophet was saying here. You've misunderstood what the psalmist was saying here. This pointed to Jesus. Well, where did they learn to argue like that? From Jesus. Psalm 110 is not one that I meant to cover, but here we go. We're just going to turn there real quickly. Psalm 110, just verse 1. Look at this. Jesus used this one to stump the Pharisees. Psalm 110, Psalm of David, verse 1. The Lord, that would be Yahweh, says to my, and now hold on, my, who's writing this? David. Okay, so it's David. The Lord says to my, David's Lord, Oh, wait. Who's David's Lord? Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord. 
sit at my right hand. Oh, wait. Yahweh is saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That is, have my authority until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And all Jesus did ever so simply in that last week of his earthly ministry was say to the Pharisees, who's David talking about here? He taught his disciples how to argue about the correct meaning of the Old Testament. This points to Jesus. This points to Jesus. The first Christians clearly understood that they had been misreading. That's why Jesus gives them this seminar in Luke 24 to teach them the correct way. He chided his disciples, in fact, for not having seen the shape of his earthly ministry by reading their Old Testaments. We are clearly meant to see Jesus and the outlines of his ministry in the Old Testament. Not like, and again, I want you to understand this. This is not like we would go outside in the afternoon and look up and say, Hey, I see a bunny rabbit in that cloud. What do you see? Okay? Not like that. That is not a good illustration for correctly seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. That is a sadly accurate illustration of how I have heard some people see Jesus in the Old Testament. But that is not what we're supposed to do. It's not a matter of our imaginations. It's a matter of our understanding Scripture. So it's more akin to, uh, as children, when those squiggles on the page, we begin to see their letters. And we begin to see the letters come together to make words. And we begin to read the sentences and understand what it means. That's how we need to learn to read our Old Testament. We need to learn to read our Old Testament being about Jesus Christ. About other things too, yes. But all of those things then pointing to Christ. Surely Psalm 1 points to our Christian experience of conversion, doesn't it? I mean, in moving from non-Christian to Christian days, many of us can remember the, the stale, stifling entrapping, repetitive nature of sin versus the fresh delight that we now find in the Lord and His ways. Paul said we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. But there are things that are not true of us as Christians if we just look at it like that. I mean, our our conversion doesn't come simply by delighting in God's law. We don't go out to our non-Christian friends on the street and read them the Ten Commandments and expect them to be happy about it. Of course... Such complete contrasts, as the psalmist writes here, are typical of wisdom literature like the Proverbs or the Wisdom Psalms. A general principle is being given to us, pointing us to the self-defeating nature of sin on the one hand and the blessing of goodness on the other. And perhaps it's in this teaching and this mode of teaching that we begin to see God is preparing His people for Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, taught like this. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount lately? Jesus is the supreme teacher of wisdom. In fact, he embodies wisdom. Jesus does this in his life and ministry, in his teaching, again and again. There's this way and there's this way and there's no middle way. Of course, in Jesus' teaching, as in Psalm 1, we should hear the commands of God on our life. We're called as God's image bearers to live in a way that reflects his character. And in that sense, all the wisdom teaching previews Jesus' ministry as a prophet, preaching and teaching the will of God. Whereas the psalmist calls for us to delight in God's law, Jesus quoted Moses to Satan, saying that man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He prayed in John 17, 17, that his followers would be sanctified by the truth of God's word. But also the high demands of this passage, I think, prepare us for Christ. 
Friends, you can only obey this kind of thing so much in this world. You can try, but I promise you are never going to perfectly embody what we're taught here. We are called to be righteous like this, and yet we fail. We all are called to salvation in Scripture not through achieving perfection ourselves, but through atonement, and even that we don't make ourselves. Even the atonement is made for us because we can't even do that. We are called to be reconciled to God by atonement and forgiveness. That's how we come into His blessing, through someone else's righteousness for us. And though we find this teaching in Exodus and the Psalms and 1 John throughout the Bible, our God, who has revealed Himself over time, calls on us in these similar themes through the particular events of the day. And finally, we are driven to the One who is truly righteous, who is made righteous for us. And we are presented with a picture of what it means to be righteous in Him. And we're presented a picture of the hope that we have that we will one day, when we stand glorified in His presence, actually be this. Now friends, I have just run through three ways to see Jesus in this psalm and I've just thrown open the doors with like one sentence for some of them. Do you realize what riches of meditation there are for you here? And this is just Psalm 1. There are 149 other ones. There is so much richness that God intends for us here to understand Him and His work in Christ. Well, all I've done by this message is meant to whet your appetite and give you a few instructions. Uh, There's far too much we could do that I would uh, just tire you out if I kept going. Let me, though, give you uh, a few things you can look at after this time is long gone that might be of help to you. I want to mention uh, a few things few written resources. I'll mention four. One, the beginning essay in the New Bible Commentary that Don Carson wrote called Approaching the Bible. It's just 20 pages. And that second half of it, especially on interpreting the Bible, will give you a good overall framework. New Bible Commentary, first 20 pages by D.A. Carson. Great essay on approaching the Bible and especially the second half of it on how to interpret the Bible. That's a good general framework for you to use. All right, three, three books. Best books I know to tell you to read on the Psalms. Not counting all the commentaries, just more books on how you approach the things we've been thinking about, Christ in the Psalms. Best, just general intro, Trimper Longman III's How to Read the Psalms. Heard you already had this last night pointed out to you. I just want to affirm that. This is a great basic intro. Simple, IVP book, short, 20 years old, been doing its good work. One horrible, terrible thing about this book, there is no scripture index. If anybody's listening from InterVarsity Press, this book would be so much more useful if it had a scripture index. But it's still a really good book if you want to sit down and read the whole thing. But now if you're a poor, tired preacher who wants to know what he says about Psalm 77, there's no index to look it up. You just have to sit and read the whole book. So, But if you want to read a book, this is your place to start on how to understand the Psalms well. All right? Number two. What some of you wanted me to do in this talk on Christ in the Psalms is give you like a 10-step way to see Christ in the Psalms. I didn't do that. Sidney Gradonis does that in his book, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. There are bunches of books out there on this stuff right now. I'm pretty sure this is the best. Better than Brian Chappell's? I think so. Better than Graham Goldsworthy's? I think so. 
mean, I like those books. There are a lot of other good books out there. But I think for what we're trying to do, carefully, correctly, seeing Christ in the Old Testament, Sidney Gridonis has done a great service for us in giving us very careful statements of how we do that and examples of it. So that book for you. Last name, very difficult for you to spell, G-R-E-I-D-A-N-U-S. And lastly, the talk that the other part of you wanted me to give tonight, Mark, just do fireworks. Just take us through the Psalms showing us Jesus. That's this book. Richard Belcher, The Messiah and the Psalms, Preaching Christ from All the Psalms. It's like a fireworks display. Boom after boom after boom, all right? You've read anything by Edmund Clowney. It's in that tradition. Just a wonderful, climaxing presentation of Christ in the Psalms. So this is the book that those of you want to get. And you want to find it and use it in your quiet times and let it enrich your own reading of the Psalms. Richard Belcher, The Messiah and the Psalms, Preaching Christ from All the Psalms. Well, I hope those resources will be helpful for you. We should conclude. You know, Christians in the past have realized the riches of the Psalms for giving us insight into Christ and the salvation that we have in them. They have realized something of the great treasure that God has for us in these songs. Augustine realized this in his life, in every season of his life. Do you know he began his decades-long pastorate in Hippo by doing an expositional series through the Psalms? That's how Augustine began And do you know when he was 75 and he got a fatal disease and he laid on his bed, he asked for all the penitential psalms to be written out and pinned up around his bed so he could read them and weep over his sins and throw himself on the mercy of the Savior, even as he prepared to meet God. The psalms are good for every season of our lives. And I have to tell you, as I've been working on this message in my own heart, I've had to wonder, would the Psalms become more prominent in my own ministry if I knew them better? If, if I treasured them more? If I saw Christ in them more clearly? Oh, friends, let's give ourselves to the Psalms. When carefully studied, what Psalm will not help us more fully appreciate and even stand in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah? So in your private meditations, consider Jesus' own history with the Psalms. He would have learned them as a boy. He would have sung some of them as he ascended up to Jerusalem for Passover as a 12-year-old and other times that he went to Jerusalem for Passover. So when you're reading a psalm, consider how it would have sounded being sung by Jesus. What would have been in his mind and heart singing these words? What overtones of meaning would there have been? I mean, after all, who could more lament the reality of sin than the one who would bear the sins of all of us who would ever turn and trust in him? Who could more sing of his trust in the God of Israel than the one who gave his life completely in trust of him? Who could more joyfully sing God's praises than the one who knew him best? Who was one with the Father before all time? Who could celebrate creation more fully than the one through whom all that has been made was made? Who knew more of the deliverance of God's people than our deliverer himself? Who knew more, who could more rightly speak words of judgment even than the man Christ Jesus who was appointed to be judge over all? 
Who could better express penitence than the one who knows both our sins fully and who was tempted like as we are yet without sin? So who perfectly knew the way God calls us to live? Who can better express the life of the pilgrim than the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost? Who could better sing the royal psalms than the one who is the everlasting king, great David's greater son? Who could better sing the teaching psalms than the one who is wisdom itself? And who could better sing songs of ascent than he who would ascend back up into his father's presence, waiting for the moment when he would return? Christ, the fulfillment of scriptures, will help us understand the scriptures. And the scriptures, including the psalms, will help us understand him more. And that will certainly make Christ all the more lovely, all the more desirable, all the more praiseworthy in our minds and in our hearts and in our churches so that we can really say with the psalmist, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are amazed at the minute care you have shown for us in your creation, not only in the intricacies of our own bodies and Lord, giving us spirits in your own image, but, but making even time and history to have your imprint and your plan of what you would do in the Lord Jesus for us. And Lord, all because of our sins, that you would love us in this way, it amazes us even more. Oh God, where we have been callous and careless, we pray that you would help us to see even more of the fullness of your love for us in Christ as we study your word. And we pray this, Lord, for our good and the good of the churches that you entrust to our care and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Mark Dever which was given at our Worship God 2008 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.